Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Hanin Elias was born in Germany and spent part of her childhood in Syria. After her family moved to Berlin, she ran away from home and found her voice in the city's then-bustling punk and hardcore underground. In 1992, she formed Atari Teenage Riot with fellow Berliners Alec Empire and MC Carl Crack. Fusing punk and techno aesthetics, which they termed digital hardcore, the band expressed anarchist and anti-fascist ideals, attracting controversy as well as industry interest. Using an advance from Phonogram Records, they set up their own digital hardcore recordings, and in 1996, the Beastie Boys' Grand Royale label licensed their debut album, Delete Yourself, leading to stage dates with the likes of Wu-Tang Clan and Nine Inch Nails. In this public talk as part of the 2018 CTM Festival in Berlin, Elias retraced her steps from punk squats to festival stages. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. Please welcome Hanin Elias. Thank you. <laughs> While we were watching this video, you said um, this was me running up and down dunes for hours. Which, which countries' dunes were those? So this was in the Sahara in Morocco. And um, actually, I wanted to um, represent the situation in uh, Syria and Iraq uh, with the people that are fleeing from ISIS. And um, so I represented actually a woman that is escaping from this and coming here as a refugee. So I hope that's clear. Actually, I had the idea um, of sitting on a camel and uh, trying to hit someone with a bow, uh, uh, like a, a terrorist guy, and he will transform into a squirrel. But uh, the guys who made the video said it's um, maybe too in intense and could cause trouble. So I can totally Im imagine it now. <laughs> <laughs> what is your um, connection to Syria? Yeah, my father is Syrian um, from Damascus and my mother German. And um, I um, grew up in Syria as well and went there to kindergarten as a child. And uh, then my father decided that um, uh, we moved to Germany. And uh, then I grew up in Germany with my three brothers. And um, But we always uh, went there to visit uh, family members. And um, so I have a very tight relationship to Syria still. And I also um, went there last year in April and the year before in September to see what the situation is like um, because the media here um, doesn't really um, represent the full picture of what's happening in Syria. Um, These years that you spend as a child in Germany after you came back from Damascus, you spent in West Germany, right? Yes. Um, how, how, how was your experience of being a half-Syrian child in Germany? Did, you, did people make you feel foreign? Um, my mom, uh, she's from Western Germany and there was a very small village uh, that I grew up uh, and I was the only one with a foreign name, for example. So people started making fun of my name and um, yeah, like uh, pronouncing it in a very ugly way. <laughs> but I got used to it. And um, yeah, but I think um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and... 
Um, what is your own favorite way of pronouncing your name? How, Hanin. How, Hanin. Hanin. Uh, there are three H uh, in, in the Arabic language, and one is Ha, the other is Ha, and the other is Ha. <laughs> and mine is the second, Hanin. Like, and it means yearning and nostalgia in Arabic. So if English people or German people say Hanin <laughs> or Hanin, it's like raping my name. <laughs> I apologize for uh, introducing you the wrong way. Specifically no, it's because fine. I'm called Hannah and then people say Hannah and I also, See, it also upsets a, we me. Have, we have similar names. <laughs> But I, so I imagine you as a teenager in a smaller West German No, no. Uh, with town. 10 years, I came to Berlin with my parents. Oh, right. So only in my childhood, I was uh, living in uh, Germany. Western Germany. That, so that must have been the early 80s. When, when did you first start experiencing Berlin as a cultural city? When did you get in touch with its music scene then? Mm, that was pretty early because my father always took me to Kudam and I saw punks and I always said to my dad, I want to look like them. <laughs> and he said, no, don't. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's... Um, in the early time, I was also interested in music, uh, especially in the 80s when I was 10, 11 years old. Um, I already had like a ideal uh, tape and uh, I really liked the new wave, gothic kind of music, which was... Uh, and with 15, I ran away from home um, because my father started oppressing me and he wanted me to stay home all the time and because I was becoming a woman and his Arabic roots came out all of a sudden uh, treating me differently to my three brothers and um, yeah then I started the riot and ran away and lived with punks and squats um, made music because my um, parents didn't want to send me money and support my lifestyle so uh, I actually had to beg people at the U-Bahn for money. And I always had this um, uh, thing that I was like, hey, uh, can you give me a, a Deutschmark? Because um, there's only one Deutschmark missing until I can buy myself a ghetto blaster. <laughs> so people gave me, oh, yeah, of course, I want to help this girl to get a ghetto blaster. <laughs> so I survived like this. And then I was um, singing with my tape recorder uh, at the U-Bahn and... Um, to Madonna's get into the groove and some kind of like strange opera uh, noisy stuff like singing very loud and um, then I got discovered by a friend um, Captain SpaceX he saw me singing in the U-Bahn and he said you're so crazy you must be uh, let's let's form a band together and um, yeah that was with um, already in my late 15s so late 15s yeah <laughs> i was nearly 16 so <laughs> yeah and then we started making music with tape machines and uh scratching with broken tape recorders and we didn't have lots of money so we just improvised with broken electronic devices and uh it was fun it was like a psychedelic um breakbeat noise guitar thing <laughs> you, you're describing this kind of break almost in, in a joyous way but was it tough living in squats where you i mean did it did it scare you did it upset you or was it overall a time where you felt just safe no i felt really free because um, um my dad uh, was trying to um i got 
house arrest all the time because I did something. So my father said, oh, now you stay two weeks in the house and you can't go out with your friends. And uh, so I always escaped through the cellar and out of my window. And I was unstoppable at that time. I really wanted to go out and I wanted to be free. And it felt good to be um, living in squats, but it was hard sometimes. One day we uh, we slept with eight people in a squat and it was winter and there was a toilet outside of the apartment. So... Um, I needed to pee urgently, but I didn't want to get up. So I peed in a in an orange juice bottle that was standing next to me. <laughs> and in the morning, the girl next to me, she was like, oh my God, I'm so thirsty. And you can imagine what happened. And I didn't say anything, but and she didn't realize. So um, until today, she doesn't know what she, what she actually drank. It's horrible. But I mean, we had fun times. We had horrible times. It was weird. And um, also I lived in a squad called Rauchhaus. Where and, was that? Um, that was at the Bitanien. It's called now the Bitanien. And um, yeah, my door was broken in. So people could just come in and, and go up. I couldn't lock it. So people came, hey, have you seen my rat? My rat just escaped and stuff like that. That was, that was the late 80s um, in Berlin. It was pretty cool, actually. Yeah. So we made music. We lived in squads. And, but um, I never dressed really like a punk. I always had this um, end of 70s kind of dressing style and people always the punks were also very square they were like oh look how you look you look like a secretary or some kind of like so I never really felt um, 100% uh, punk because they are also very square so when the wall came down you weren't 18 yet or you were just about oh before 18. that apropos wall um, there was the Linné Dreieck and we were squatting there What is the Linné Dreieck? Linné Dreieck is where now, uh, now is the Potsdamer Platz. And uh, people were protesting there and uh, building their own houses and um, having tents and everything. We, we stayed there for weeks. And then the police came. Uh, it was right next to the wall back in the days. Now it's the Potsdamer Platz. You can't even imagine how it looked um, back in the days. And then uh, the police came to... Um, free the country from us <laughs> and we were protesting against the autobahn that was planned there and um, then we uh, got sprayed with uh, lots of tear gas and water it was very strong and horrible and so we climbed over the wall and the east berlin uh, Fopos, uh, they welcomed us and gave us cheese bread and coffee and let us out and towels of course to dry and uh, then we went back so we were actually as I can recall the only people who fled over the wall but in the into East Berlin <laughs> was crazy times. Was that your only contact with the East German police? I mean that that sounds like such a you know such a unique incident. It is a unique incident and if you go on YouTube there's very rare material uh from VHS still um that shows the situation how people really climbed over the wall into the east and then came out <laughs> later on um was really funny. I mean it's a unique experience so to climb over the wall in the other direction totally. And during all this time sort of your main The main creative outlet for yourself was music, or was there also were, were you involved in any sort of performance, dance? 
making clothes, etc. Making clothes, not so much, no. Um, <laughs> no. Because <laughs> I imagine music. you, I mean, I, I, what I you always just liked said, to yeah. write. I, I like to write my lyrics and my thoughts. And um, back in the days, my English wasn't that good. It's still. Um, but um, yeah, I always like to um, express myself through music and lyrics very much. Yeah. I'm asking because you just said that you look different. And I think even for people who have never heard your music or can't consciously remember your music, a lot of people know your look. And, but that, that just came, you, you always had a specific kind of style and just developed it from there. I mean, it's, it's also very um I think continuous. I liked it simple. I like just like simple dresses and just no she-she stuff. And um, because it's timeless, I think. And I always liked the, um, the style of the 40s and 50s, which... Um, I mean, it's not very punk rock, but I think punk is a state of mind and not a, a look, basically. From performing in sort of like uh, U-Bahn stations, <laughs> um, I, I assume there were venues and squads as well. What, what were early venues that you played at? Um, early venues would be um, places like Aima. Um, like after the wall came down, um, there were lots of places in Mitte and Prenzlauer Berg. Like, uh, Emma was a squad too, right? Emma was a total squad, yeah. Emma and uh, what's the other name of the places? I can't even recall the names. Long gun, Mitte <laughs> squads. <laughs> exactly. Places with no names at all. I mean, and back in the days we didn't have uh, internet. Uh, there were just flyers made and, and spread. But the parties were so crowded. And nowadays you have Facebook and all the event pages. And then sometimes it's so much that you don't even want to go out because there's so much <laughs> choice and you can't decide where you go. And uh, it was all mouth to mouth. And um, people went into um, squatted uh, closed U-Bahn stations Uh, and had a party there, just with ghetto blasters and... Uban stations that were closed because of the way that the city geography shifted after the wall came down? Exactly, yeah. And did you have any possibility back then already to record, or was it mostly you, like the broken machines, the two of you? Or yeah, you we, had a, we had an eight track with Captain SpaceX, and we recorded, but it was sounding really bad. I mean, there was no... Um, <laughs> uh, no mastering or anything. It sounded very lo-fi. And uh, we also made theater plays. Um, and our band was called Aluminia. And I was dressed in a um, like uh, space kind of suits and we looked like we are um, from another planet, basically. Very funny look. <laughs> It must have been during that time that you first met Alec Empire, right? Yeah, I met a friend of him at a dance marathon of Radio For You. So I was like dancing to um, early techno stuff and tried to win the dance marathon because you could win some money. And I always needed some money back in the day. So I thought, I can do it. I like to dance. So, And then uh, this guy uh, just talked to me and said, hey, um, let's hang out. And through him, I met... Alec and then um, Alec and me um, 
started talking about music and he asked me if I can um, sing a song with him for his band Die Kinder, um, which was his old punk band. With um, And I sang Identity with them. And uh, that's how it started, actually. And then we decided to form a band. Um, I mean, he said uh, he recruited the uh, band members, but it didn't felt like that for me. So for me, it was like, okay, we're going to form a band and uh, let's see what's happening. And then it was him and me. And we also played at the Techno Seed festivals. We had several projects. For people who don't know the Techno Seed festival, Techno Seed festival was uh, um, one of the first uh, techno festivals, like. Uh, um, Tanit and people like that. We, we really admired uh, his hard uh, style of DJing techno stuff, and also we liked break beats and um, and we had this uh, performance at Techno Seed, instrumental mostly. And um, yeah, the music developed. Um, first, we had break beats with uh, his him playing the Gibson guitar. And uh, me singing whatever came into my mind. And um, yeah, then it developed slowly that we had a strategy and we want to um, become political with the music that we did. This urge to become political was one, I mean, it sounds like you had been political the years before as well. Was there, was there anything specific that happened that triggered you and Alex saying, we're going to be political in our music? Yeah, we saw after the wall came down, it was not only fun and love and peace and unity. Um, I mean, the, the new unity um, that developed uh, was like a, a German unity. And uh, then all of a sudden, uh, the new scapegoat uh, was foreigners and people who were in refugee camps. And uh, these camps were all of a sudden set on fire. And uh, you, you hear, heard more and more of these stories that... Uh, people were set on fire, uh, refugees, and so that was the negative aspect of the German unity. And uh, I always was political, and I uh, really didn't um, just want to make music uh, and for the fun, uh, because uh, I always had this mission inside of me that I want to change things. Yeah, I mean, like I ran away from my dad and told him, fuck you, uh, um, I mean, now we get along very well. He accepts me the way I am. So sorry, daddy. And um, yeah, I was always like uh, against something. I had this uh, um, very strong feeling of um, justice and uh, wanted to make things right. <laughs> there was at the same time, though, a, a kind of scene going on in Berlin that was not so much about conflict, but about unity and love etc these like, yeah. early years of the love parade or maybe the early years were yeah. more angry so were you opposed to that or did you, did you know not in the people? beginning in the beginning it was a cool energy but um i always thought um but this is so boring there are not really vocals in there there's not really a message in there it's just like it feels like um everyone's doing the same marching thing and tries to forget all the stress at work and uh, just let letting go of things, and uh, and it was empty after a while. So um, I thought, hey, why not? And like, of course, or, or too. So we were like, okay, let's have lyrics, let's have a message. 
and use the same equipment um, but make it more dirty and not as clean and because the direction was more and more getting um, the sound very clear and very clean and uh, the nice thing of the beginning of the techno era was the dirtiness the dirtiness of the places you know sometimes it was dripping from the roofs we were all standing in in, in water but because of the um, the dancing you felt warm and uh, you know it was kind of rotten and that energy was very cool and punk rock so maybe if I yeah can play something <laughs> Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. You had a lot of fun. Yeah, we did. And this was actually um, filmed in the club that uh, we owned. It was uh, the Suicide Club. Wait, you own Suicide? Um, with a friend, yeah, uh, Roland Braun, back in the days, yeah, and uh, Ralf Brendela, and Ralf Brendela uh, took over the club later on and uh, um, turned it into Suicide Circus, and he, he has now this techno club, but, but in the beginning it was our club, and we had the bass terror parties, and uh, we wanted to have all, uh, like, DHR sounds there, and... Uh, Yeah, it was cool. So, um, yeah, as you can see, we used guitars, which pissed off the techno scene. And uh, the whole crossover thing wasn't very welcome in Germany. And also um, the messages. So there was a divide. We liked some of the stuff they did, but they were like totally conform about their music. And uh, so... Um, People in the States were very open-minded and so we were more successful overseas than actually in Germany and Berlin. Because as, as this video says, that was already when you were already signed to Grand Royal, which is... Oh, that was... That was... Uh, was it? Well, I think that's how the video was um, yeah. sort of tagged, but maybe the recording was mm. before that. Yeah. But Well, what happened is that you got signed by a really big label yeah. in the US. Mm -hmm. How how did the years before that unfold? So from you, you know, meeting Alec Empire and then he recruiting you or you founding the, me, exactly. <laughs> the band. <laughs> yeah, um, we started making this kind of stuff uh, like with, with guitar samples and... Uh, Then we had Carl. Carl was there already as well. And Carl Craig, Carl Craig yeah, Carl our MC. Yeah. And um, yeah, we had shows in Berlin and in, in German clubs, uh, very underground. And then uh, a friend of ours, uh, Philip Virus, who also made this video and most of our videos, um, had, had a sister who was with... Um, an American guy and she was in the music scene and she's now married to Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Junior. And so the Beastie Boys discovered us through her and through uh, Philip. So, um, and they wanted to sign us and then we, uh, we toured in the States and uh, had success over there. And in Japan. And, and in Japan. And we toured the big day out and we toured with Wu-Tang Clan, Rage Against the Machine, people like that. It was, it was fun times. 
<laughs> How do you, I mean this? What you said earlier, the political anger that you had, or the political message that was a lot about how Germany um, evolved, or the problems that occurred in Germany after the reunification. How did you feel like that translated to an international audience? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we had lots of um, lyrics that uh, are about starting a riot uh, and um, anti-government and also death of a president, DIY. And uh, if you listen to uh, the lyrics now, it's like prophetic. Um, everything that we were singing about, the whole terror thing, wasn't happening back in the days. That, that was in the 90s. But it's happening now. It, it all came true. So it's kind of... Um, We um, foresaw the future in a way and lots of people uh, didn't only um, project it on the German cause because it was happening globally and worldwide and the dangers were all there for people to see. I mean, there wasn't um, the possibility to check everything on the internet like nowadays. But um, yeah, if you if you would have your sensors out, you could al already feel that it was going into a direction of um, yeah, more monopoles and uh, lobbying and and bankers uh, taking over, um, politicians um, trying to um, have their economy uh, stacked up. <laughs> On the cost of uh, foreign countries and, and stuff like that. So, and there was a huge, uh, huge millions of people were protesting against the Iraq war, but it didn't change anything. So uh, that was like panicking us. You know, we wanted to um, speak to the people and wake them up, and we also used the right frequencies uh, for that, because uh, mostly people get very you know, relax, you know, watch TV, don't worry, you know, everything was like that. And our frequencies were like, wake up! <laughs> like in this film Network, um, you know, when, have you seen it? Network, it's a cool film from the 70s. Should all right, I everyone, it? cool film from the 70s. It is. Watch it. <laughs> I don't, unfortunately. Um, but this, so yeah, you had a a vision of more justice and equality for the world but how yeah but also how, to get the people away from this passiveness yeah yeah how much justice and equality was in a tarry teenage right though yeah well <laughs> it started very well uh, and then um after a while um yeah um it felt it didn't feel like a um equal band situation anymore so um, I decided to leave <laughs> and do my own thing after Carl Craig um, committed suicide and he committed suicide um, a few weeks before September 11th happened uh, and that was the end of an era and at this point it had been you, Alec, Carl and Nick Endo in and the band Nick Endo, that, right? exactly, she joined later the band and took over um, the singing part now, but you you did not leave because of Carl's death. You left because oh, that was one that was one reason why I left because I thought um, it's not going to be the same anymore. But also there were tensions. Uh, you know, um, I was pregnant twice during 
the whole Atari thing. So um, I was mostly in the tour bus with with a, a big belly and, and most of the video clips of Atari. <laughs> I was pregnant. I had um, my two kids who are now 20 and 17. Um, while I was with Atari Teenage, right? And you can imagine, I mean... Um, that it was very exhausting as well, like to always jump and scream. And um, I mean, it's it's great. But um, I remember uh, we were on tour with Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor told me, hey, Hanin, um, I know you are in the seventh month now. And um, why don't you give birth uh, to your child at my house? And um, then we can continue the tour. And I'm like, all right, what are you talking about, you know? And I knew that he had this, um, uh, his the door was from the Charles Manson massacre when they killed Sharon Tate. And uh, he bought this door in an auction and had it built into his house. So I was like, mm, no, maybe it's not a good omen, you know, what? what is, who knows what this guy, you know, you never know, people are crazy. And uh, so I decided not to do it, which which was a good idea because uh, it was a very um, difficult birth. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it was always like that. People seem to ignore that, uh, you know, I need special treatment uh, in a way, you know. And uh, it wasn't appreciated that I was pregnant and also... Um, I got discriminated. Oh, yeah, you're getting fatter and fatter. It's not so cool, you know. So I felt like, shit, um, it feels like I'm um, I'm in this uh, commercial band that I never wanted to be in. And uh, uh, guys treated me just like, a, like I guess, Kali Minogue is getting treated from her uh, label people when they tell her, oh, no, you, you need to change your look. You, you can't go on like this. So it was kind of the same. And, um, yeah, I didn't feel good anymore. And um, also um, I had signed some contracts in a hurry that uh, actually um, made sure that uh, I wasn't a part of the band anymore and that... Alec was the only one deciding what's happening. So it didn't feel like a democracy or something at all. And uh, yeah, I decided to leave. So there's no GEMA millions that are no. pouring in each time someone <laughs> plays Deutschland has got to die. <laughs> you get 10 cents. Uh, um, I was, uh, he, uh, yeah, something like that. Not even 10 cents. <laughs> <laughs> but did did you co-own digital hardcore recordings, DHR, the label? No, I had a sub-label. I had a sub-label, Fatal Recordings, but I didn't owe it. So uh, later on, I reformed the label outside of DHR and called it Fatal Recordings. Mm. Let's maybe listen to um, a track of Future Noir, which is your record that came out in 2004 which is sort of after that was already <laughs> exactly actually. my solo stuff yeah you chose a song a very sad song uh, uh, of mine but that was really a phase of my life where, when I was really down and um, I found this guy Tweaker Ray um, who came and jumped on stage when I was playing in Hamburg um, for my solo stuff and then later on um, we talked and uh, he played me his demo tape And I found his music so beautiful um, that I asked him, hey, 
don't you want to um, produce my next album and uh, we can uh, sit together and uh, write songs together and um, because uh, I, uh, yeah, I, and we did. So um, with him, um, I produced a, a Future Noir album, which that, that song also had Thurston Moore on guitar, right? Exactly, yeah. At Thurston Moore, um, I met also through um, Philip Virus's uh, sister, and I went to Amherst, where uh, Jay Maskus and Thurston Moore lived as neighbors. And uh, I hung out with Jay and Thirst Moore and uh, we, we jammed. That's how the Thirst Moore guitar came onto the song. Yeah. And this came out on your own label, on yes. Fatal, yes. where you were only releasing female identifying artists. Yeah, or um, guys who identified with uh, female people <laughs> being what they are. Allies, sort of. Exactly, yeah. Because at first I thought, okay, only female musicians uh, doing electronic music their way, you know, not as dogmatic as the guys, like talking about equipment all the time and um, being very important. And um, so I formed this label Fatal Recordings and I had great bands. Like girls were just sending me tons of stuff, very different uh crazy sounds and lots of energy uh, it was very inspirational but it wasn't a commercial success at the end and uh, at that yeah I mean the Future Noir album was um, the most important album for me to break free from um, DHR and uh, from the bondage contract uh, and this song actually represents uh, that I was actually put on ice because uh, I couldn't find another label and uh, because I was still in a contract with them, which was prolonged for longer even. And uh, so I could only um, get it out through uh, my own label. How did you survive these years in a, in a financial way after Atari? Uh, I uh, had a husband, <laughs> luckily, <laughs> um, who um, was selling uh, architectural antiques. He also had his own uh, business. Like He, he was collecting um, furniture after the wall came down. And uh, then, he, uh, yeah, like people threw stuff out and just put it in front of his house, in their houses, and he just collected everything. And uh, by now he's one of the... Um, most important uh, collectors from, from these architectural antiques, like old tiles and doors and stuff like that. And uh, even people like George Clooney and Tom Cruise uh, go to him when they make a film in, in Germany um, to get these old uh, original um, architectural antiques too. Yeah. But you were also involved in running a gallery. Is that right? Yes, that Galerie Elias. And um, we had like... A, um, special um, pieces from the architectural antiques that were too good to just uh, sell them over there. He had an uh, old pig farm that he transformed into a, um, a warehouse for his stuff. And uh, yeah, then we had this gallery. Yeah. 
How did you how did you like to be in that kind of scene in in the art world compared to ah, your, it, your teenage years in squats? It wasn't really a scene of art lovers. It was more a scene of people who like nostalgic stuff because it was like these old rotten things and it had more to do with my um, time as a new wave goth, you know. It was like these beautiful um, graveyard uh, figures, for example, and I could totally identify with that nostalgic, uh, um, these nostalgic pieces, I love that. Um, Fatal Recording being this well, mostly female artist label and you having had given birth in, in the 90s as a musician. Um, were there many women you could talk to about this experience? No. In, in Germany? <laughs> I was only 24 when I had my son and um, everyone else uh, was too busy with themselves and uh, they weren't interested in kids. So um, I... I didn't really had uh, friends, and especially from the music scene, who could identify with that. Is it? It was feels like there, there's quite some, specifically from Berlin, there are quite some um, women organizations or groups of women who are only releasing music by female artists, or who are you know from networks such as Female Pressure. Um, and I'm talking about labels such as Monica. Were you in in touch with them? At all? No, not really. Um, that came later that uh, they were interested and I think I, I'm also on a compilation of female pressure. Um, but not really directly in contact. We had our own scene and it, it was an international scene. Um, and um, bands like Fallus über alles, Kunst and uh, Lolita Storm, um, people from all over the world actually sent us stuff and we organized a concerts for them to play jesse evans for example she moved to berlin because of that and uh yeah we, we had our own scene <laughs> and in this scene there were quite or at least to me it always felt like there were a few younger musicians who did their thing sort of knowing that someone like you had done things before such as gina dorio for example yeah yeah who must have been a friend at that time. Yes, um, we were touring together. We were in the tour bus all the time, uh, making jokes and fun. And Gina and Patrick, uh, they had this band Ikata, so they were on DHR. And uh, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> After you did the gallery and then you did the Future Noir album, um, your life kind of moved away from music but also geographically away from from europe right what what happened yes so in this gallery i sold this pan like a nature god of bronze so i had some money to um take a trip um to french polynesia which i always wanted to see because i read this book about kahuna magic and like uh, some weird stuff and so i got interested in french polynesia And um, yeah, I uh, flew there alone, left the kids and my uh, husband uh, and yeah, landed on this island, this beautiful island, Huahina. And when I landed, I thought like, oh my God, this is my home. I always, you know, I felt like I'm at a place 
where I can totally uh, relate to. It was humid, you know, it was sensual. The colors were like, all of a sudden somebody had to uh, switched on Technicolor in my life of gray Berlin sky <laughs> and everything. <laughs> the sea was so amazingly turquoise and blue and, you know, shades of green and gold and it was so beautiful. And um, the thing was that I... Um, in the last week of my stay there, I fell in love with some fishermen on the island. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then when I came back to Berlin, uh, I told my husband, well, I'm so sorry, but I totally fell in love. And I think I have to, after 11 years of marriage, um, have to go there and live there. And um, uh, But he was very cool about it. He said... I thank you for the uh, 11 years you spent with me. And you was always so open-minded and we're still like best friends. I mean, um, so I took the kids to the island and um, moved there with that fisherman <laughs> who was also a policeman on the island. And they had like only five policemen on the island. <laughs> from the Tahitian police and they had these sexy uniforms like short pants and then the tattoo would stick out you know and um, they didn't have guns or anything and uh, the Tahitian policemen um, were only um, responsible for the Tahitian people because they hate the French, the gendarmes so they didn't want to have any business with them and if there's something happening in French Polynesia um, like family arguing or whatever Then only the Mutoi, the Polynesian police, goes there and uh, takes care of it. I moved in with him. He had a self-built house of little, you know, was fun. <laughs> Living in this improvised house. You couldn't lock the doors. And we had a chicken in the cupboard, like um, laying eggs. And so every morning you could look, oh, okay, we have some fresh eggs. <laughs> the chicken was there. <laughs> it was so cute. And um, yeah, um, for me it was really nice because I, I always lived in this you know, aggressive kind of uh, um, environment, like always being against things. and Yeah, I have quite a few videos of you screaming, fuck yeah, the police exactly. on trucks. I was so, so then you were angry, you know, and so anti. And um, I think it, it was very soothing and uh, calming and it, it totally changed me to live on the island and just have this relaxed lifestyle. And it was also important for the kids. I mean... The kids were kind of hyper, hyper uh, active a little bit, you know, because they're city kids and they always need entertainment and Game Boy and everything. And after a while, you know, we didn't have any television whenever it was raining. And um, then the kids just calmed down. They were, you know, becoming more happy with like having a plastic bag and sliding down the mud hills and playing with marbles and going fishing It totally turned them into very patient, quiet, calm, nice human beings, which they still profit from now that they're back in, in Berlin. Yeah, it was a big change of life. And um, I went fishing with a spear gun and uh, hunting for my breakfast and uh, planting vanilla and papaya and uru. You know, uru is the breadfruit. Um, which caused the mutiny of the bounty back in the days. And that's very delicious stuff too. 
Yeah, and uh, I love Polynesian people. They are very have this kind of like rudeness, very honest, and they look at you, but they really, really look at you. And the, there's this. Uh, so I learned French there, and this guy I was with um, uh, only spoke spoke Tahitian and a little bit of French. So in the beginning, it was a Tarzan and Jane situation, you know. <laughs> But it was great. I mean, um, after five years, uh, I came back. And that was a very horrible time because I had to start from zero again. But, yeah. But your journey kind of went through, <laughs> at least in a, in a creative way, through um, Latin America and through, I think, Chile yes, specifically, yes. Argentina, um, mm -hmm. because you were collaborating when you were living in French Polynesia, you were collaborating yeah, yeah. with lots of yeah. Latin American artists. So I had, I had some fans in Chile um, who listened to our music when, I, when they were 12. And um, now they were older and they were like, Hanin... Um, you can't stop making music and you're on this island now and is, is, is everything over? You have to continue making music. Please don't stop and uh, please come to Chile and uh, we send you a ticket and we organize a tour for you. And I'm like, what? Okay. <laughs> so um, I decided to go to Chile, uh, play some shows and also uh, record some tracks with this guy Diego Sagredo from Chile. And um, he organized also um, some other trips like uh, gigs in Argentina and Brazil and Peru. And that was cool. So I started making music again and um, made some songs for the Get It Back album. Should we listen to Yeah, um, Get It Back, maybe, the track? This is also you getting back to... Get so it back, but that song um, I made with uh, Marcel Zürcher. Who, who became is, your partner in Phantom. Exactly. Well. So with Marcel, um, who was my um, first my drummer, then my guitarist for the live stuff, um, I made this track, um, which also, yeah, it's a collaboration. I love collaborations. <laughs> Because then, um, you know, other people give other ideas. And he comes from an industrial background. And... Um, You don't hear that in the in the stuff we make together. Not at all, I think. But this is, is sort of picking up where you left a bit with Atari because you got back into some songs, yeah, rapping. Because um, I mean, um, yeah, the influence is there, and uh, but but it's it's more dance was more in this kind of like hip hop direction. Um, but I'm not a hip hopper, so. Something else came out of it. <laughs> But where, where, where do you nowadays find the anger to perform such lyrics? Or is it a very different kind of anger? I mean, um, I'm time? angry every day when I look at what's happening in, in, uh, in the political world. And that's where I always got my anger from. I think I got this from my father. <laughs> He was always watching TV and shouting at the television. And uh, I always found that very annoying. But now I took over the part. <laughs> it's like... It's horrible what's happening politically. Uh, the foreign politics of the US and uh, the Western countries and the NATO countries are, are just like, you can't just be calm or you're, you know, you, you had too much Kool-Aid if you're too calm, which I didn't, so. 
You made an anthem for Syria called Kraken. Yeah. And you're also involved in a film called Kraken, which is yes. going to come out sort of in, in a few months, right? Kind of soon mm -hmm. by a, a guy called Christopher Canal. I, I still don't really understand how the anthem for Syria that you made <laughs> is related to this movie filmed in Iceland yeah. of the same name. Um, the movie was filmed in Iceland uh, and Christopher Canal asked me to make film music for um, before he asked me to play a role in the movie. So um, Romain um, um, and me, Romain Frequency, uh, also known as Electrosexual, um, we made the song. But um, when I was um, making the song and we knew it's for the film, um, I also thought um, this melancholic uh, vibe also uh, represents my, um, my sadness for Syria. So it's kind of like a, a double song. Uh, on, it fits very well with the Kraken film, has this icy uh, feeling of elves. But on the other side, it's also this melancholic feeling I have when I think of uh, Syria, the Syria uh, from my childhood. And uh, so why, why not use it in a double sense? <laughs> All right, we're going to listen to a minute of um, your Kraken anthem for Syria. And then if there are any questions in the room, please feel free to and it's film think music. about them now. Yeah. So this is uh, Kraken and it's also out on your very on your newest EP, right? This is yes, Hold Me EP. And uh, there's also um, a song, the, the main song of the EP, Hold Me. And uh, in the video, um, uh, a guy who I met while shooting the film Kraken in Iceland uh, and he made camera for this film and he offered me to make a video. And because Thomas Le Marquis, the actor who also played in Blade Runner and uh, X-Men and Icebreaker, um, owed him something, he uh, plays in my video and runs around naked in the snow, <laughs> which was really funny, I think, and cool. I suggest we, we watch that video in the, in, in the very end, but before that, please, if there are any questions. Yeah, ask me. Please, don't be shy. <laughs> you said earlier you went back to Syria after 18 years, right? And have dabbled a bit in journalism. So you've interviewed a few people. Yes, in, it was a spontaneous thing, actually, that I started interviewing people with my phone. Um, and uh, because I wanted to... Um, it was very, you know... So there was this big um, media thing about Syria, um, people in Aleppo, and Aleppo is burning. So I have family in Aleppo. And um, they always told me a different story. And uh, they lived in West Aleppo. So it's what people here would call the government-held area or the regime area. And um, my family is from a Christian um, minority, so they live in West Aleppo and they always got targeted by mortar shells and um, other shellings, um, self-made ugly uh, bombs. And so they saw people dying every day, but nobody ever um, reported about them. So I went there, I talked to people um, I even offered to go into a talk show with Anne Will to uh, talk about the other side of the story, uh, which is actually the um, bigger part of the population who lives in the 
other areas. So, and um, since Aleppo now is liberated, as I say it, because now uh, 800,000 people came back to that uh, area in East Aleppo, where everybody here was reporting Aleppo is burning and stuff like that. So um, now people are coming back, but nobody reports about that. So it's a very difficult situation and I wanted to go there and see for myself because I didn't see uh, anyone in the media reporting about this properly and was very biased and one-sided. And of course that's a geopolit geopolitical move. Um, yeah, and um, I don't support that. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole other world of great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. Okay, enough URLs for now. Thanks for listening.